it's interesting if you think about it that the New Testament writers, some of them are writing to mainly Jewish audiences, some of them are writing to mainly Gentile audiences. <clears throat> Excuse me, but both of them assume uh, an understanding of the Old Testament. So these references back to the Old Testament, these inferences to Old Testament things are really necessary for us to be able to understand the New Testament. And the New Testament authors uh, thought that as well, even when they were writing to Gentiles. And so then the third thing, again, that, that was referenced, Jesus himself claims that the Old Testament is about him. So we don't have to sit back and, and wonder and speculate, is this about Christ? You know, Jesus says that it is. He's, he actually refers. So a couple of, of places that he does that um, in, over in Luke, a couple of places in Luke that, that I'll look at briefly. In Luke chapter 4, let's see, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16, it says, And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as, he was, as his was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up and read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, Old Testament. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus says, all these things written about in Isaiah, they're being fulfilled before your eyes and before your ears in me, in Christ. And then, of course, the one we're very familiar with over in chapter 24, after the resurrection, um, verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus and Miss, so, uh, oh, let me back up there. Verse, verse uh, let's see when I start in verse 25. He says, um, and he said to them, Jesus, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So again, Jesus takes the entire Old Testament and says, these things are about me. So we've got that um, promise from Christ, that, that clear testimony that the Old Testament is about Jesus. So we should study it. We should look at it because it points to Christ. So perhaps a simple way to sum up the Old Testament is just in this phrase, promises made. Uh, so one of the books that you'll see on the back of your hand, on the handout, is just that. The Old Testament is promises made. The New Testament uh, promises kept. So the Old Testament is where we begin to see the promises that God makes to his people. And we also see that God is faithful. He will make promises, and he will make promises to his people regarding things that they could never do for themselves, that they could never keep for themselves. And so then um, we learn that God is this merciful, promise-making God. And then we look to the New Testament and we see how he fulfills those promises in Christ. So that's kind of a brief 
reason, a few brief reasons that we should and, and would want to study the Old Testament. Any thoughts or questions so far before we get into kind of a, an overview of the Old Testament? All right. Well, at any point, if you have any thoughts, they hit your mind, just, just let us know. All right, so a historical overview. Let's take a few minutes and briefly look at the, the narrative of the Old Testament. Made up of 39 books, again, written over a 1,000 years. Um, and there's different ways that people divide up the genres of writing in the Old Testament. It's, it's not purely narrative. There are other types as well. So we can divide them up in different ways, but let's just do it real simply um, in just the categories of history, poetry, and prophecy. So if you look at the Old Testament, the first 17 books are historical in nature. They lay out the narrative of the history of Israel, starting in creation and then moving forward up until about a 400 years before Christ came on the scene. So there's this histor historical aspect, aspect to those first 17 books. And then the next five books, uh, which would be Job, Psalms, Proverbs, um, Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon are poet, poetic in nature. So these are books of poetry. They're not historical. Um, not saying that they're, they're uh, not historical, so Job being historical. But they're written in a, a, in a poetic fashion. And they're, they deal with various topics, things such as worship. We know that from the Psalms. From lament, so bringing complaints to God. Um, is biblical, and if done in the right way, we see that in the Psalms and, and uh, in other places. Um, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, these things give us insights into the topics of wisdom, um, meaning, you know, what is the meaning of life? Ecclesiastes de uh, delves into that, and love, Song of Solomon, this, this poetry between a husband and a wife. Um, so there's this poetic aspect to these books. And then the last 17 books are the writings of the prophets. So their prophecy, we'll talk about that more in depth as we get there. Um, but these books are really God warning his people, God's commentary on the life of his people, um, things that are about to take place um, near and far, and also just the, God just declaring what is true regarding his people. And the, and the prophetic books are broken up into the major and the minor prophets. That doesn't mean they're the important ones and the unimportant. It means they're the big books, the long books, and the short books. So if you look through the way they're organized in scripture, they really kind of go from the longest to the shortest, more, more or less. That's, that's not exactly the case. There's some Malachi's not the shortest. But anyway, it's kind of the way that is. So they're all important. Uh, some are just smaller than others. So they, they overlap with the historical books. They take place in time periods that are described in the historical writings. And they also have some, some narrative in them themselves as well, kind of given some commentary and some additional input. But let's think about the history that's laid out then, uh, this narrative that begins with creation. So starts obviously in, in Genesis chapter 1. Um, we read that God created the universe out of nothing, so there was nothing God spoke it into existence. We see the kind of power that our God has just by the fact that he speaks and things happen. 
And in the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, we see that creation. Uh, it's described to us. And we also see that mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. Mankind was created in God's image and given this role to represent God to the rest of creation. So, so the story of man is going to become important. And then just the next chapter in, chapter 3, we see that the first people, Adam and Eve, rebel against God. Sin enters the world and corruption and, and all of creation then is thrown into ruin. Uh, just three chapters in, into the Bible. And then things just begin to go from bad to worse from that point. You know, so then we see um, Cain murdering his brother. We see uh, mankind getting worse and worse and more rebellious and more idolatrous to the point that God decides to wipe mankind out and just start over again with one family in Noah. Uh, but then even after that, we find out Noah's family was not righteous uh, because sin's still in the world and, can, and it continues to deteriorate. And then we get, we get to chapter 12 of Genesis and we see God's plan of redemption and restoration begin at that point. And, and we begin to see this story that God will, uh, he will restore his people to himself. And he does that in Abraham, beginning in J chapter 12, where he begins to make the promises to Abraham. Um, God leads Abraham for his old, from his old land to a new promised land in Canaan. Uh, and at that point, the plot takes several twists as they're traveling in the land of Canaan, but ultimately they end up in Egypt. And that leads them into being to a position of being in slavery in Egypt. So uh, Israel's in slavery for 400 years, and then God raises up this man named Moses to lead his people out of slavery. Uh, and they do that. Um, he's, he also gives them the law at that point. So he he writes the law on stone tablets. He gives it to them and calls them to be obedient. And God sets uh, this people, this nation of Israel, who they've expanded to be a great nation while they were in Egypt. He sets them apart, makes them a holy people of his own. Um, and then he leads them back to the promised land where Abraham had been before. Um, and he gives them the task of displaying his character to the nations around them. But instead of doing that, uh, they, uh, they embrace the wicked practices of those nations around them. They fail in that task. Eventually, they reject God as king, and they ask God to give them a king. And, and his kindness and his, and his mercy does that. Uh, the first king, Saul, is disobedient. He's not a, follower of, a faithful follower of God. So God removes him from the throne and sets a man, David, on the throne, a man who is after God's own heart. And really, this kind of leads us to what might be the pinnacle of Israel's history with David and then his son Solomon on the throne. The land is, is uh, under God's favor. There's, there's some obedience there and, and some faithfulness. Um, and it, things look good. But then we find out that actually, turns out David, even as good of a king as he was, he's also a sinful man. And as it turns out that his sons that would follow him at it, on the throne, they're even more wicked than David himself. And so they continue uh, to, it kind of spirals downhill again. And, and then after Solomon, his son's reign is over, then uh, the kingdom is split into two. So there's a northern and a southern kingdom. 
and the northern kingdom is on a fast track to wickedness and idolatry, and eventually God uh, destroys them by the hand of a nation, the Assyrians. Uh, and then about 100 years after that, a little more than 100 years after that, the southern kingdom also is carried off into captivity by the Babylonians. So they're in captivity, they're in uh, away for about 70 years, and then God mercifully brings them back um, to the land, and it's getting close to the end of the, the Old Testament now. They rebuild the temple that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. They rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, and then the Old Testament ends. You know, it ends uh, with Israel really kind of being a shadow of its former self, and with just their total and utter dependence on God. Uh, and it's not the way you might have thought the story ends, so it leaves us wanting and hoping more, for more. And so just thinking about that narrative, you know, that's a nutshell uh, of the Old Testament. We'll, we'll get into more details, obviously, as we go through the, over the course of the next several weeks. But what should we learn from this narrative? Is there anything in just thinking about the history of the Old Testament that we can learn from? Complete dependence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, God's always asking them to repent and come back to him. He doesn't give up on them. Yeah. Again, that patience that we're told about in the New Testament, we see here. You know, God is slow to anger. Wasn't the Son always promised throughout the Old Testament anyway? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, there is a promise in there of the coming Messiah. There's going to be one. Yeah. So there's those promises. Yeah. They, they probably just got tired of waiting, so they did what they wanted anyway. So. Surely not. We don't get tired of waiting, do we? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, they should have relied on God's word, you know. They, they had the, the, the you know, prophets and stuff. They didn't have Jesus, the real thing, like Pepsi, but, you know, they had, they had God's word for yeah. the prophets. Yeah, exactly. Other, other things we might be able to learn from this narrative. I think you needed something spectacularly different to happen, to break the chain. You see it over and over again. You see even kings like David and Solomon, and yet they fall. They still disobey. Because there's something extraordinary has to come in. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's going to take more than man can muster up more than, than just this pattern we've seen of uh, you know, God giving a command, they promise to obey it, they fail to obey it, they just can't do it. You know, there's, there's just not going to be the ability on mankind's part to keep the covenant that God, God requires. Why do we sin now if we get bored? You know? I don't know. It's in our nature. Why do we sin? Yeah, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That has always been, always. It, it, it was the same then as it is now, and it's never going to change. Yeah, we have a sin nature um, that we cannot overcome. They, they had a sin, it's the same as we have now. So, and we, we can't, you know, judge unless we, we, we be judged. Yeah. So we can't judge them any more than we can judge people now. No, we can't think of ourselves superior to them, can we? So, yeah, they, so these are good things. I mean, if we think about it, there's much we can learn from the Old Testament and should learn 
You know, we shouldn't just look at it as, as some sort of history that doesn't apply to us. Um, there is, that's right. Uh, there, there is application for us. So, you know, let's just kind of articulate this in a few reasons. So, um, first of all, we should learn from this narrative what not to do by studying some of the mistakes that Israel made. And Paul even tells us that in 1 Corinthians. Um, in 1 Corinthians 10, listen what he says concerning the Old Testament. Uh, he says, verse 1, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they're written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will, let, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know, so Paul says very clearly, Look at the Old Testament and don't do the things that they did. I mean, there's some examples. They were written down for us that we might learn from those examples. So we learn, we should learn uh, the things that we shouldn't do um, from reading the Old Testament. And then secondly, we, will, we should learn that God has a passion for holiness and mankind has a passion for sin. You know, there's the, there's the reality right there. God is holy He's passion for his holiness. We are sinful, and we actually, uh, in, our, in our sin nature, uh, we're pretty diligent about pursuing those, sin, those sins that, that, we, that we want to pursue. Um, so, uh, third thing here is we learn that all people are sinners, and we're able to conclude that we're not able to deal with sin ourselves. So, you know, I got this is not the right response towards sin. So, you know, think about what we learn about that truth in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve had everything, and yet they rebelled against God. God starts over with Noah, uh, but he and his descendants fall right back into sin. God picks one family to bless in Abraham, but they're sinners as well, and we see that played out. Um, God miraculously rescues his people from Egypt, takes them out of slavery, and they grumble and complain on the way out, you know, for 40 years. Um, God brings them into the land, but they turn to idolatry. Um, Even a king as good as David, we find out, is a hopeless sinner. You know, when even God sends the nation into exile, and then he graciously brings them back, but then they go right back to their sinful ways. Um, And so all of this just should be a a reminder to us 
and a graphic reminder of just the sinfulness of mankind. We're not able to deal with it. Uh, all of the things that uh, they had, that God gave them, uh, the, the advantages, the benefits, the blessings, still did not enable them in and of themselves to do anything about sin. It, it was there throughout the whole story. And then uh, the fourth thing we learn here is from the Old Testament narrative, all hope is not lost. You know, this sounds pretty grim, right? Uh, but uh, God is faithful, and God is going to do what needs to be done, ultimately. We, we begin to see these promises, and we begin to see this narrative uh, in the Old Testament of this idea of atonement. So there is going to be an acceptable sacrifice for sin, um, and that should give us hope, right? And so as we start to look at it in the Old Testament, there's, there's several ways we see that. Um, the wages of sin is death, but there's an opportunity for a substitute to die in place of the sinner. So God begins to introduce this thought to us. So when Adam and Eve sinned, what does God do? He clothes them with the skins of animals. When they couldn't clothe themselves adequately, they tried the fig leaves, wasn't adequate, God clothes them with skins, which means a sacrifice had to be made. There was a, 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 an acceptable sacrifice there for God. Um, we talked earlier, God provides a ram in the place of Isaac when he tells uh, Abraham to go and sacrifice. Um, at, at the Passover, a substitute lamb's blood is adequate to turn away God's deadly wrath from the people. And then uh, when we think about the Levitical sacrifices, uh, this idea of atonement then is really twofold. So not only is there a penalty of sin borne by a substitute, but then the relationship with God is restored as a result. So it's not just the, the payment for sin, it's a restoration of relationship with God. And so God's teaching us through the Old Testament that he is holy, uh, that sin is deadly serious, but that the guilty can be restored to a right relationship with him through atoning sacrifice. So that's a theme that we need to see in the Old Testament and we need to hold on to. But there's other things that we learn about the Old Testament sacrifices as well, though, right? And we learn that even though they were prescribed by law, they're really not effective, ultimately. So um, there's not an animal sacrifice that can be in the place of our sinfulness, right? Um, Hebrews 10 kind of lays that out really clearly for us. He says, the author of Hebrews says, For since... The law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You know, this reminder, it's like God will accept this sacrifice, but it's not permanent. It has to be done over and over and over again. And there's a weariness there if we have to continue to do that. And it points us towards the hope that there is a better sacrifice. And it's ironic 
that when even in the Old Testament, when the sacrifices really were most pleasing to God was when the one making the sacrifice knew that they were not effective. So you think about what David says in, in Psalm 51. Um, he says, you know, it's not, a, it's not a sacrifice that you really want. It's, it's a right heart. And so the heart position of the, the one making the sacrifice was even more important to God. So and that really leads us to this last lesson from the Old Testament that we'll look at this morning. And that is the story of the promise that's introduced. Um, so there is this promise that God makes. Soon after the Old Testament begins, we find mankind under a curse. Genesis 3, mankind is already under a curse. And so you go through the entire Old Testament, you get to the end, and mankind is still under a curse. We see that even at the end of Malachi, in the last verse of the Old Testament, mankind is still under a curse. So man's rebellion is on full display for 39 books, 2,000 years of history. It's the same story of man's rebellion. And we have to acknowledge that God is just to punish wickedness. You know, if God is holy and sin is an abomination to him, then he's right to punish sin, right? Um, and mankind is deserving of that punishment. But there's this interesting little twist. There's this interesting key to the, to the Old Testament. Look, look over, if you've got your Bible, look over in Exodus 34. This is, some, some would call this the mystery of the Old Testament, which is in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 of Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So, kind of something kind of mysterious there. So, it tells us two things about God. First of all, it tells us that he by no means, it says there, will clear the guilty. By no means will God clear the guilty. But at the same time, it says that he will, uh, he has love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So it says God is merciful. He will forgive sin, but at the same time, he will by no means uh, forgive the guilty. Um, so how is that possible? You know, so here, here's the key. How can God both forgive sin and not clear the guilty? How can he do both? What's that? That's a good question. That's a good question. He needed a sacrifice, perfect Okay. We need a we need a sacrifice. Yeah. Thought other thoughts. How can he do both those things? Can you put out the question one more Yeah, how yeah. How can God both forgive sin and also not clear the guilty? 
the sins of the guilty was put on the cross, and he took all that for us. Yeah, ultimately find, we find out that that's the case, right? So it really goes back to this promise that God has made. Um, he will forgive the sins of the guilty, and at the same time, that he, his holiness will not be compromised. He will punish sin and guilt, or sin and, and, and the guilty will be punished there. And really, it goes back to this promise. So this promise, we're going to see it throughout the Old Testament, and it will ultimately, ultimately then be fulfilled in Christ. We'll see it come to fruition in the New Testament. So the promise that God makes, he will keep. Um, and the first time we really see this promise goes back to Genesis, 13, or Genesis 3, verse 15. And this, as God is cursing um, the serpent and cursing the woman from this sin, in verse 15, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So here's, listen to the promise here. He shall bruise your head, the, the, um, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise the serpent's head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there's a promise here. The serpent will bruise the heel of the offspring of woman. The offspring of woman will bruise the head of the serpent. So the serpent will cause problems. He will cause pain. He will cause you know, disaster and, and difficulty. But this, off, this offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, will crush the serpent's head. He will, he will cause a head injury. He will ultimately destroy the serpent. And so there's going to be a conflict we see right from the beginning between the seed of woman and between the seed of the serpent. The serpent will injure, but the seed of the woman will strike the death blow. And so there's a promise in this. This, this is a good promise that we will come to realize how great that is as scripture unfolds. Uh, a lot of this promise is going to be unfolded and we'll start to know more and more and understand more and more as we go along. So uh, we see that, that in the story of the Old Testament, this promise seems to be in jeopardy all the time. You know, if the seed of the woman is our hope, he will ultimately crush the head of the serpent. Um, the, the Old Testament keeps getting to these points where we think, how is this going to be fulfilled? How is the seed of the woman going to make it? You know, we, we look in the next chapter of Genesis, and what does the seed of woman do? Cain, he kills his brother. Um, but what does God do? He provides a continuation in Seth. So it's in jeopardy, but God comes through. And then it keeps going. Um, God destroys the earth with flood. How is the seed of woman going to... To remain, but he preserves one family through that. Um, and then he promises he'll never destroy the earth in that fashion ever again. So again, we see this promise. Um, then he makes a promise to Abraham that through his offspring, all nations will be blessed. And we say, this is a great promise. But then we look, Abraham's and, and Sarah have no, no children. There is no offspring. Sarah's 90 years old. How is this possibly going to happen? Uh, but God pr miraculously provides a son. Um, and then he does so again and again. It's interesting how barrenness, women that cannot have children, is this theme throughout the Old Testament. And God miraculously provides time and time again. With Isaac, 
um, with, you know, just multiple times. Um, and so the Israelites go into slavery. Um, how is it going to work out? But God brings them out. Um, Israel rejects God as their king, but God provides a king, and he provides a good king, and then he makes a promise to that king that this king will always have a son to sit on the throne. Um, and so there we see hints of that promise again. And then even when the people are in exile, God reminds them of the promise he's made. And just want to look at this one last passage in Jeremiah 31. Listen to this promise. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them, out of, took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. You know, this is a promise given to Israel while they are in exile. You know, and everything, as we've already talked about, has not worked out. You know, they just haven't been able uh, to stay in right relationship with God. And then God makes this promise again. You know, one day I will put my law on your heart. It won't be an external law that you have to continue to try to fulfill and continue to offer sacrifices when you fail to fulfill that law. It will be on your heart, and all of my people will know me. Um, and so there's this incredible pro- promise there, and, and we see that. We see the thread of that promise throughout the Old Testament. So do you see how these pieces kind of all fit together? You know, sometimes we look at the Old Testament, and it's just you know so many different stories and different things going on and things that don't make sense and... Uh, you know, the prophecies and all these things. But there's this continuity to it. And again, we see that on the one hand, when the Old Testament ends, mankind is no better off than when it started. Still under the curse, still in rebellion, still far far from God. But on the other hand, uh, we see that and we understand that God's promises are not going to fail, and they haven't failed. So we understand man's helpless to improve his situation. He's completely dependent on God, um, but God is gracious. And so the stage is set for Christ to enter into history and to fulfill all that was required for man to be reconciled to God. So in the end, and when we get to the New Testament, we'll, we'll understand clearly that Jesus is the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. We've been waiting for who is that? Uh, it, it wasn't Abraham. You know, it, it wasn't David. It wasn't anybody, but it will be Christ. And we, we realize that Jesus is the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of God's people. Uh, we, real, we should realize that Jesus 
is the son of David that will sit on his throne forever, fulfilling that promise that God made. And so Jesus is the answer to the riddle of the Old Testament. You know, how is it that God can forgive sin and not let the guilty go unpunished? It all is fulfilled in Christ. You know, he, he punishes the sin of, and of the guilty by punishing Christ, by putting that sin on Christ. And then he forgives the guilty by accepting Christ's righteousness in our place. But you must believe in him. Right? You must believe, yeah, that's true. You, you, you can't not believe in him and he forgives you. You must believe in him. That's exactly right. Uh, it it does re, it requires faith, and praise God yeah. that He gives us that faith. Yeah, just go you around know. and do whatever you, you want. Exactly. So, so um, that's kind of the message of the Old Testament. So that's that's a quick introduction. Uh, next week we'll jump into Genesis. Terry's going to take us through Genesis for the next couple of weeks, and we'll begin to see this in a little bit more detail. So, any questions? Any comments? about that West do you know anything it's a little off but between the time of the Old Testament and New Testament and Messiah and all that do you know any of that history for Jerusalem and what happened for them? yeah I mean it's it's recorded we know a lot about that uh, you know of course there was a lot of things going on on the world stage so um, when we, when the Old Testament ends um, the Medes and the Persians and some of these kingdoms are, are reigning as world powers. And then when the New Testament begins, the Romans are in power. So, you know, between those two, we, we see various kingdoms, which are pro- actually prophesied in Daniel. Right. You know, we see that the kingdoms and the Greek, the Greek will come oh, into I'm power. And, uh, yeah. So a lot of that history, you know, we, we have it. God's people um, are going to kind of grow a little bit again as the Old Testament ends. They're a small group back in, in the, the promised land. When we get to the New Testament, they've grown, but they're, they're definitely not in charge. You know, they're under occupation. So. so who and what determined the, the, the timing between the Old and the New Testament? God. <laughs> I know, but, but, who, but when the Bible was written, you know, how, how was it determined? What was going to be the the difference between the last book of the Bible and Matthew? You mean? Yeah. You mean how did they determine? the Bible. You know how did they determine what was the Old Testament? What was the New? Yeah. 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 Well, um, they the the early church worked through that, but you know there's this clear break in the theme. You know, so the Old Testament is about God's people in Israel um, pointing forward to this Messiah. But when the New Testament starts, it starts with Christ, right? It starts with Jesus. So, so that kind of gives us the new the theme, and, and we're going to see how that promise is fulfilled. Even, even to speak to that a little bit, when you look at some of the writings that take place between that period, most of the Jews um, have this self-awareness that God has stopped speaking to them. And so there's a there's a, a clear sense of this, and you have a book like Ezekiel, where God makes it very clear. I'm kind of, I'm done with you for right now. There's this sense in which God is making very clear to to Israel. I've spoken to you time and time again. I've told you what I've told you. Uh, I've given you promises, and I will fulfill those promises. But for now, I'm, I'm going to leave you, and I'm going to stop speaking to you. And and you see that largely in the the intertestamental period, those Jews 
we're, we're very sure that that was the case, that God has stopped speaking to us. And so there were writings that popped up, but most of the, the people of Israel would look at the writings and say, nope, this isn't God. This isn't God speaking to us. Until, of course, Jesus shows up. And, and everyone who starts following him says, God's spoken. You know, you see this in Hebrew, Hebrews, that he has spoken to us again, but now through his son. Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting here. The last two verses in the Old Testament say this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so there's this prophecy about Elijah coming, and then we learn in the New Testament that that's actually about John the Baptist. So the Old Testament ends predicting that this guy John the Baptist is going to come. And then the New Testament starts with this guy John the Baptist showing up on the scene. So there's 400 years between those two things. But you kind of see that this is how it ends and is pointing towards what's going to come. And then it starts up again, God's revelation, when he comes. Other, yeah. is what happened during those 400 years? What happened during those? <laughs> you can. Yeah, Alexander and the Egyptians yeah. saluted oh, to the Romans. Okay. Just, yes, like you said, just a succession of kingdoms. Yeah. Yeah, during the captivity and then the they divide. Yeah, there's. Civil war type. It's, you know, it's like other areas of ancient history. It's documented. You can go and read the things that happen uh, during that time. Sometimes in your Bible, in between, life has it. There's a synopsis of what really happened to the the kingdom yeah. during that time. Who was controlling them? And yeah, it's interesting built. history. It is when they rebuilt, when they returned to Jerusalem, and yeah. yeah. All right. Did you uh, you talked about it a little earlier? Talk about how the Old Testament is ordered, like just the sequence of the books. Yeah. So the first seventeen books are the history. So they really start with creation. And they really work through, you get through, uh, particularly Kings and Chronicles, um, they take us up, to, and then uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, those three books are uh, the return from exile. So all of that history kind of is spelled out in, in the first part of the Old Testament. Then there's this middle section that's the poetry, uh, and you know Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, those books. And so those aren't historical in their use. Uh, they were actually used uh, during the time and certainly in the New Testament used as well. So that kind of separates the, the history, the, that's the poetry, and then the last 17 books are the prophets. So the prophets wrote during the historical periods that, that are laid out in the first 17 books. Most of the prophets are later. You know, it's, most of the, the prophets are late kingdom, and during the time of exile, uh, predicting the exile, and then uh, during the return from exile. So all of that happens during those times. So you'll see a lot of history in those books as well, um, but intermingled with the prophecy. So you know the prophets were there. They were proclaiming God's truth and his warnings to the kingdom, the nation of Israel. You know, the nation's is going downhill, and God sends the prophets to tell them about that and to warn them and to call them to repentance. Is that, is that what you're asking? Mm -hmm. Okay. Good deal. All right. Any, anything else? Good deal. Well, Colby, could I get you to close us in prayer? Mm -hmm.